Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Katz. Hey, Peter. Hey, greetings. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the state of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, particularly here in Massachusetts, where the primary is just a few short weeks away on Super Tuesday, a.k.a. March 3rd. As you may have noticed, Sanders looks a lot like the Democratic presidential frontrunner right now. He just won New Hampshire. He is a heavy favorite in Nevada. And one recent poll shows him beating every other Democrat in a series of hypothetical head-to-head matchups. Joining us to talk about Sanders 2020 are state representatives Nika Elugardo of Boston and Mike Connolly of Cambridge, two of the, I believe, seven co-chairs of the Sanders campaign here in Massachusetts. Did I get that right? Yes. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Nika and Mike, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you for having us. Let me start by asking you guys to describe the opening of the Sanders office, which was last Thursday, right? Where was the event, uh, and what was the feel like as you guys set up shop? Take it over. You are the MC. Okay. Um, well, thank you, uh, Nika, and thank you for having us. It's great to be back. Um, you know, all of the attention, you know, naturally was focused on New Hampshire um, going into the first in the nation primary. And so um, on Thursday of last week, uh, probably what, 48 hours after the voting had concluded in New Hampshire, uh, the Sanders campaign opened up its statewide headquarters uh, near Nubian Square in Roxbury. Uh, close to 400 people came through the doors. Um, there was uh, nice traffic throughout the evening. There was a presentation um, from speakers, including myself and Rep Elgardo. There were also musical acts. Um, so it was sort of a, some entertainment, some politics, some food, and just tremendous energy. There's a video of it online, and there was a lot of um, you know chanting and, and real excitement. So it was fun. Uh, just a little context before I give one additional uh, point on that particular night. So there are 30 headquarters that, uh, over 30 headquarters that opened up in the last, between Thursday and Sunday of last, uh, you know, that just passed across the state. And so from Northampton, South Shore, North Shore, all over all over the state. And so that was fascinating to me. Uh, the seven co-chairs, six of us are state reps. And so the co-chairs are not uh, staff. So we're not running the campaign. You know, they... Uh, want us to sort of represent the political um, head of what's going on across the state. And I think that's why they picked the state house, because the state house, the, the house of burn, I like to call it, uh, is the is the state of the state house in Massachusetts, although obviously six is a small fraction of 160. And the seventh member, she's famous for uh, starting the Sunrise Movement here and uh, is one of the co-founders and, and one of the leaders. And so it's a representational group. Uh, on the ground is where the real action is happening in these headquarters across the state. And we're excited that Roxbury is statewide headquarters. And that is a real statement that the campaign is making. However, I asked when I was speaking, how many of you are from Roxbury? And, the, and like three people raised their hand. And that didn't surprise me because almost everyone in the room was white and we were in Nubian Square. And so we talked about what does it mean to have a cross-cultural, like an obvious cross-cultural canvas and, and headquarters? What does it mean to be a guest in a black neighborhood when we are talking about the progressive values of justice for all out of the Bernie Sanders campaign? And there was so much enthusiasm and a spirit of learning. And that, that's actually why I endorsed the Bernie Sanders campaign, even though there's more than one progressive candidate, because there's a, a real ability to and desire to learn 
Like, how can we be stronger at not only welcoming a number of people into the campaign, but welcoming them into leadership, being good guests when we enter into their neighborhoods, and very quickly converting them into leaders next to us. You set me up perfectly for a question I wanted to ask both of you, which I'm asking not in a sort of sharp elbow, intra-partisan way, but both of you supported Bernie Sanders in the last election, so there's a consistency here. But why Sanders over Warren? I mean, it, it, it's, by the way, I've been wrestling with this issue sure. and trying to figure out how Massachusetts goes. And I keep reminding people that Bernie Sanders almost beat Hillary Clinton here right, four years right. ago. But it's a tough choice, I would imagine. It was tough for me uh, from the standpoint of endorsement. Uh, I mean, I decided to, ber- to vote for, for Bernie right away. So uh, I was either going to endorse Bernie or endorse no one. Uh, but I liked Elizabeth Warren, and I had been talking with her campaign, and I had the same problems with her campaign that I had with the Bernie campaign before talking to them. And that was, okay, policies are great. You're a senator. Senators should have great policies. Uh, details are great. That's fine. I worked in organizational development for over 20 years, and details doesn't actually make movements. And so I need to understand, what are you doing to address some of the things we're accusing other parties of, such as supremacy issues, um, not just white supremacy, but you know all kinds of discrimination? How are we addressing that internally? And what does that look like when, when you're having um, labor rights be sort of a central theme? What does that look like in how people are treated on your campaign staff? And just honestly, between the two campaigns, there was a clear distinction. Uh, and so while both candidates are very progressive, both candidates are strong leaders, uh, only one candidate is the leader of a movement that works very, very hard to address the issues of not only supremacy, but consistency with progressive values and how the campaign operates. And so that was very exciting. And and it was an easy choice after I talked to uh, Bernie's national team. Can you share a little bit about what you heard from Sanders' national team that made you think, okay, here's the the clear-cut option to go with? How did they convey to you that they were getting it right in a way that the Warren campaign wasn't? There's sort of three things I'd say. One, not just catching the ideas of what the difference between a systemic movement is, but being able to articulate that clearly. Two, not being defensive, but really saying, yeah, we're getting a lot of things wrong, and here's how we're learning. Uh, And that was different than every other campaign uh, that I talked to, except Biden's campaign, which called me a lot. They were pretty humble about things, but didn't have the policies that I needed. (laughs) That humility is the second thing. But the third thing is they had data. So they were able to say, uh, we haven't done uh, much work on this in Massachusetts yet, but here's what we did in Iowa. Here's what we uh, are doing now in New Hampshire at the time we were talking to make sure that we're bringing grassroots leadership, uh, not only from people of color and immigrants, but also from, I, I mean, if I'll just say it. I said, I want to make sure I'm from Ohio, a white redneck guy from Ohio where I grew up should uh, really love Bernie's policies. What are you doing to translate socialism to the whole rainbow of people that benefit from the values that we share with Bernie? And they were able to answer those questions clearly, compellingly, and in a way that I actually was admiring these young people that I was talking to and feeling like I'm learning from you. Mike, how about you? Sure. You know, well, I think first and foremost, what Senator Warren's accomplished in this campaign has been really remarkable. And, you know, I think there's a lot um, we should celebrate and be proud of here in Massachusetts. Um, But building on on what Rep. Belagardo said, you know, for me, it was really an endorsement not of a particular individual or a particular personality, but it's wanting to really endorse a broad-based movement. And that's the thing that Senator Sanders has been focused on working on year in, year out, 
Um, and it's, you know, it's backed up by the data that you're seeing around the country. And so I think we really have the potential right now with Bernie's campaign to do the thing that Democrats have been talking about for decades, to really build a multiracial, multigenerational working class movement that can bring millions and millions of people uh, into the political process to not just defeat Donald Trump, but also to continue fighting and to take on the oligarchs and the fossil fuel industry, um, the pharmaceutical companies, and all of these uh, issues that impact the lives of ordinary Americans. And so I think it's incredibly exciting to see um, how Senator Sanders is doing in places like Texas, how he's doing in Nevada, how he appears to be doing in places like uh, California. Um, you're really seeing a coalition that um, I think is really unprecedented. And and then finally, just following up on that, you know, the focus of Senator Sanders is not me, us. And so that's really what we're talking about. We've all lived through the experience of Barack Obama, you know, an incredibly compelling leader, um, you know, a brilliant individual, someone who has supreme skills as a politician. And when that individual got into the White House, um, the focus on sustaining the movement and deploying the movement wasn't there. And so I think for those of us who lived through that experience of being frustrated with the final outcome, which, you know, in the end, um, Democrats lost 1,000 seats across the country. You know, we've had setbacks on the Supreme Court. We've witnessed the ascension of Donald Trump. I think those of us who are deeply committed to Sanders' campaign realize that it's not going to be a single individual choice that's going to make the difference. It's going to be a commitment to movement building that can transform the country. Nika, you said that you were always going to be voting for Sanders, who you voted for back in 2016. It was just a question of whether you would endorse him publicly this time around. And Mike, from the way you talked about Sanders, my sense was that for you to Warren, as impressed as you may be by what she's accomplished, that backing her as a candidate was never a possibility for you or for you, right? Well, not always for me. And so I decided to vote for Bernie um, after talking with Elizabeth Warren's campaign uh, team. So the people that reached out to me to ask if I would endorse her, I hadn't decided who to vote for yet. Okay. I was sort of feeling disappointed in all the candidates, not on the grounds of policy, but feeling that America needs a movement right now. We need a shift in our values, not just a shift in the way we think uh, about policy, but a shift in the way we think about democracy. And I could see that in Bernie's words, but uh, my, my recollection of his 2016 campaign was that it wasn't any better than anyone else's in that regard. Oh, interesting. And so um, I, I kept going and, and the various debate, debates, I sort of decided, OK, I'll vote for Bernie because uh, his approach to progressive politics is more compelling to me. But I'm still not sure that I would endorse any campaign publicly because I've I had, I had talked to the Biden campaign because they called me a couple times. I talked to the Warren campaign. They called me a couple times. The Patrick campaign had even called. But really just to say, we'll see you at the party <laughs> was more of an assumption than a request. Uh, and so I actually called. I reached out to Mike Connolly. I knew he was a strong supporter of Bernie Sanders. And I said, you know, the, the Biden campaign is ask, asking me for policy help on progressive housing. Uh, issues, and I'm happy to provide anybody with support, but I'd rather support the candidate I've decided to vote for. Uh, and so Mike put me in touch with some members of the team who ended up putting me in touch with some members of the national team. And it was those conversations with young people of color who are leading this uh, movement and the Bernie Sanders campaign that I didn't only find compelling, but inspiring. 
And Mike, just so I make sure to understand your own evolution or lack thereof correctly, were you always going to be with Sanders when he decided to run again? Um, I kept a, an open mind throughout much of 2019. I've had a very, um, you know, positive association with Bernie. I've had a positive, you know, uh, relationship with Elizabeth. And I've actually donated, donated to both campaigns uh, last year. And then I think as... Um, you know, as 2019 started to approach 2020, it started to become clear to me that these movement dynamics were really what were going to make the difference. But I certainly um, wanted to, you know, witness sort of the field shape up and the campaign shape up and see where we're at. Have you noticed the, the change in MO that Nika referenced just a moment ago, uh, the, the Sanders campaign doing things better when it comes to creating a sense of uh, being an inclusive movement in 2020 than they did in 2016? Absolutely. You know, and I think there were, you know, criticisms of the Sanders campaign in 2016. You know, I think some of them may have been um, overblown or politically motivated, but many of them were quite legitimate and quite, you know, concerning. And to engage with uh, Bernie's campaign staff on the national level, um, and to witness, I think, how intentional he's been about um, recruiting um, a diverse, you know, array of staffers and, and, and people who are helping to drive and inform this campaign. And then the impact that they are having in reaching um, voters from all backgrounds all around the country uh, really was impressive to me. And really, I think that actually made the difference. If, if Senator Sanders was simply rehashing his 2016 campaign, I'm not convinced I'd be sitting here having this conversation. I <laughs> Right. I don't think I'd have this conversation. But the beautiful thing, and I think, you know, the corporate media to some extent, not including um, our friends at WGVH, but some of the folks on cable news, I think they have been very late to realize what has been going on with Senator Sanders' campaign. And I'd come back to what I said in the beginning. What I'm seeing is a candidate and a campaign truly doing sort of the ideal vision of what we as progressives have always wanted to do, which is engage people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, all around the country in a movement to move forward a progressive agenda. And I think that um, witnessing that was the thing that has really made me realize this is really something I've been waiting to see my entire life, and I didn't want to be on the sidelines. The leader of the Stop Bernie movement seems to have shifted from Joe Biden, whose fortunes appear to be fading, um, to former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Do you see Bloomberg as a threat within the Democratic Party to the progressive wing? I mean, I think what we're seeing with Bloomberg is completely unprecedented. You it know? is. So there really is, you know, I don't think we can underestimate um, what could happen when an individual commits to spending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars like it's nothing. So I think it is a threat. And I do, you know, I think he has to be called out and rejected uh, every step of the way. But if he is called out, rejected, uh, every step of the way. Might that sour him on if he doesn't get the nomination? And believe me, I don't think we will have a much better idea the Wednesday after Super Tuesday as to exactly where Bloomberg stands. But he is committed to funding the Democratic Party 
worked all the way through in order to unseat Trump. Um, does that bother you? It bothers me. Um, I think that Bloomberg's approach is a threat to democracy. It, 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 it reminds me of the 2004 Democratic National Convention, which I was working. It was my only brief stint as a Democrat before I became one uh, two, two years ago. You were, you were unenrolled before that, right? I was unenrolled uh, for over 20 years. Um, and then I was there working on behalf of a former ambassador, and so I had some inside tracks to see how things were done. And I was like, a lot of things are mimicking what Republicans have done, especially in terms of fundraising and how we approach that and who gets on the inside and who gets on the outside. Why is that? And most of the answers were kind of like fight fire with fire type answers. And in my view, when you fight fire with fire in the wrong context, you just burn the whole forest down. And that's where we're headed with the Bloomberg mindset. If we can continue to buy politics as our primary way of winning, we are no better than the Republicans. In fact, in many ways, I think Bloomberg's approach and Donald Trump's approach are they're, they're sort of like two birds of a feather. And uh, not just in terms of how they approach this election, but how they approach politics and people, how they talk about people. They're on different uh, locations in the continuum in terms of their politics, but not understanding that the deeper values of justice for all are not about what you can buy and what you can win, but about winning hearts and including people in the leadership of solving their own challenges and doing that together. America has a destiny that's before us that we could lose out on. And that is a destiny to really become the first democracy in the world that has the diversity of the entire planet at every level of leadership. That's what the Bernie Sanders campaign is about. That's what the Bloomberg and the Trump uh, approach to politics threatens. And that's what we need to fight for. And we need to fight hard for it, not only in this election, but after we have a new president of the United States. Congresswoman AOC has a real sort of national celebrity status, but she, too, was a very serious political person. Um, it strikes me increasingly that she is an incredibly important asset for Bernie Sanders, in part because when you both talk about the movement— she has always considered herself part of a movement. I mean, it's like a very organic intersection there. Um, could either or both of you talk about the influence she might have in Massachusetts as a persuader? Sure. You know, um, I guess I'll jump in on it. Um, you know, she is an incredibly um you know, powerful and I think compelling leader for the Democratic Party um, certainly represents something um, I think similar to how uh, Nika and I have gotten into politics, which is, you know, challenging the party from the left in a primary, asking the party to live up to its ideals, to do the things that we uh, want our party to do and, and to say that there's a real urgency to do them. And to see uh, AOC on the stump, I was in New Hampshire on Monday night at that uh, rally at UNH where there was over 7,000 people. Including the Strokes. Including the Strokes um, who were um, had, the, had like the crowd rushed the stage and the cops were on the stage. It was almost like a melee at the end. Um, you know, to, to witness the power that um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez has um, 
as a spokesperson for this campaign and as a leader for this campaign is, you know, really compelling and, and something, you know, not for nothing. After Senator Sanders um, had the heart attack and then AOC endorsed him, really the campaign has shot up ever since then. And so I think it's it's worth it's worth noting that. I uh, listened to AOC speech at New Hampshire streaming and I just caught the, the end of it and her theme was really love. And I think that ability for her that she has to take complex concepts like democratic socialism, like uh, labor justice, like Medicare for all, and to translate it down into uh, terms that everyone can understand is really important. That said, um, I see a progressive justice like a rainbow. And the AOC talking points are one very bright color in that rainbow. They're not talking points that are going to be compelling to uh, the African-Americans in my family in Ohio who are worried that people that use very strong language are going to drive increased racism uh, and a new president. I think I've talked to African-Americans in the Midwest where I grew up who feel that uh, strong language like AOCs, um, particularly what she, the type of language that she is known for, which is a small percentage of the type of the words that she speaks, (laughs) which uh, can be... um, can come across as caustic and direct and forceful rebuke of capitalism, uh, that that's going to uh, generate a kind of a backlash against African-Americans. And so while they agree with the sentiment of what she is saying, they say, well, you know, we need to have a safer choice than Bernie Sanders because he's sort of represented by words like socialism that people don't understand uh, what he means and and by the, the media's representation of someone like AOC as as a sort of a negative uh, personality. And um, at the same time, she's she's bringing in with that same direct truth telling, uh, unapologetically justice focused tone. She's bringing in a whole round of people. However, what I said to the Bernie Sanders campaign is I need to know that the other colors of the rainbow are going to be represented because we are really talking about justice for all, not just justice for everyone that understands and talks like us. Uh, and so how are we going to translate uh, all of this, all of these messages to a message that is not only compelling, but it has to be somewhat comforting to African-Americans in the Midwest, to to uh, poor working class uh, descendants of, of Irish people in, in West Virginia, uh, to all kinds of people who will benefit from Bernie's policies and from the broader progressive movement. And the campaign really had an answer to that. And and AOC is one of the colors in the rainbow, like I said, a very bright color. But there are many other uh, ways of, of delivering the same message that are, that are necessary, that are continuing to be developed, and that will have to continue to be developed even after the general election. Well, let me get you both to elaborate on that point, because it gets to maybe the biggest question that I biggest remaining question I wanted to ask you, which which is, suppose that you are surrogates for Democratic nominee Bernie Sanders a few months from now, and that you are, uh, Nika, let's say you, you're off there in Ohio, where you're from, trying to make the case to people that he's the right choice. Um, imagine that someone says to you, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of President Trump, but uh, you know, democratic socialist, uh, you know, I, I don't even know what that is. It sounds kind of extreme to me. I'm not sure I want to vote for Sanders either. What would the quick, you know, one, two-minute pitch be to someone who had misgivings like that? It's the same pitch that we've been, make work, that we've been making here in Massachusetts as state representatives. And so 
you know, not only when I ran, but since I've gotten in, I've been a big fan of, uh, of the labor movement and of unions. And the first time I sat with building trades who had gathered from across the state to uh, do business and to hear me speak, the room was, um, I'd say, over 95 percent white men. And, um, and most of the women were also white. There were a handful of white women in the room. And I said to them, you know, you've heard me via the news talk about structural racism, systemic racism, but I want you to know that class warfare, it's another leg on the same beast. And, 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 and what we're doing with democratic socialism, what we're doing with the progressive movement, what we're doing on the so-called left is we're saying we want to equalize uh, not only labor, health care, housing, but we want to equalize justice for everyone. And that means understanding that at the roots of our country, race is just an example of the way that elite forces have been able to maintain how politics works, how the law works, how structures work, how public institutions work in a way that keeps some people at the bottom and allow others, a very small percentage of others, to rise to the top. And then a very small percentage of those people to control the decision making everywhere from D.C., to Beacon Hill in the case of Massachusetts, to even many of our cities and towns. We can turn that over, but only if we work together. At the foundation of our country, white men who were not landowning were not allowed to vote either. And that's something we often forget. When we talk about the, the history of enslavement, of plantation thinking, it extends far beyond the black people that were enslaved, far beyond the indigenous people who were victims and survivors of genocide, it extends into our entire culture. It extends up into the middle class. We're seeing that in the housing crisis. We're seeing that in the crisis of access to affordable health care and prescription drugs. We're seeing that in jobs access and the ways that even when our economy does better, it seems like the same kinds of people still end up at the bottom. And we're seeing that in the way that money controls politics. Mike, would you add anything to that? And then Peter gets the last question. Unfortunately, we'll have to wrap up with that. Well, first... Uh I'd associate myself with everything uh, Nika said. That was uh, really, really said it all. I'd just add, to add a point to that, uh, Matthew Iglesias at Vox um, highlighted a poll a couple weeks ago um, that showed that Bernie beats Trump. And then after they asked that question, they said, you know, let me remind you, Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Now what do you think? And what, you know, what Vox reported was that really didn't impact the numbers. And so what I would you know, draw from that is, you know, this socialism, capitalism, that's just one dimension of many different dimensions that are running through people's minds. And, you know, on it, on qualities such as authenticity and sincerity, um, someone who is here to fight for me, not for some corporate interest. I think Senator Sanders um, is doing well on those dimensions as well. Adam, I'm going to close with a statement, not a question. And that's, you know, I've been following, I've been paid to follow politics for over 40 years. And I grew up in the household. My grandfather thought the greatest American of the 20th century was Eugene Debs, socialist who ran for president, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, second. Um, I've never seen any evidence of a serious socialist movement in the United States. Um, I would say that's changing. It's changing because of demographics. Um, I think younger people are more open to it than people my age. But it's also changing because of circumstances. Frankly, the rich and privileged have gotten so darn rich and so darn privileged that they're leaving no out for other people. 
And whatever happens in the Massachusetts primary or the presidential election, I don't think the phenomenon we're calling Bernie Sanders at the moment is going to go away. All right. That is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. State Representatives Nika Alugardo and Mike Connolly, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us while you're at it. And then let me, Peter, and our producer Zoe Matthews know how we can make The Scrum better. You can get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Zoe is Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are... At Kansas with a K. Our engineer for this episode was Dave Goodman. We get crucial production help from a number of other colleagues with Gary Mott topping the list. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.